Welcome to Education Rx. The education system in the U.S. is sick, and we all need to find ways to heal it. I'm Holly Bronson. I'm Shannon Donaway. Together, we have almost 50 years of experience working as professionals in a school setting. We may not have all the answers, but we're looking for people who have a piece of the solution puzzle. This is Education Rx. Oh, yeah. Yeah, it's on. We're recording. All right, let's do it. <laughs> We're going to make a podcast. That sounds great. We've been talking about doing this for quite a while um, because we are educators, special service providers, which just means our role is to support students and teachers with helping kids access learning. Yeah, we've been doing this, me, for 22 years now. Yeah, and I'm 23 years in, so we are almost 50 years together. It's a long time. It is. And we have seen it all. And I think even before COVID, we were seeing some things in education that were pretty concerning. Yeah, things started to change. And then COVID hit. Yeah, so COVID hit, and then it brought a lot of things out into the open, and then it created a whole set of new issues. Right, and some of those things people will, especially if you're not working in education, may be surprised to know these are new issues that educators are dealing with that came from a lot of it from COVID itself. This season, we're going to dive deep into how teachers became first responders during the quarantine and how student isolation created unexpected issues with social emotional well-being. I think we both saw a lot of that with our own children. Definitely. And the students that we work with. Yeah, 100%. I mean, students are struggling and continue to struggle with their social emotional well-being. And I think we both have heard students make comments that are very apathetic, like, you know, COVID showed us that we could all die any day. Is there even going to be a world for us to, you know, be adults in? Yeah. And why try? And why? What kind of future do I have? It's pretty sad. And I think we've also seen what a lot of us call the mass exodus after COVID and the first year that we came back from COVID, there were a lot of teachers that just left education or left a traditional setting and went virtual. Yeah, there's a lot of teachers doing e-school now. And that's a bummer because e-school is good for some people, but is not necessarily the solution. We know that students benefit from being in a building. Most of our students would not benefit from e-learning. Right. And think about, I mean, explain to our listeners who our students are. Yeah. Well, our students, mine in particular, generally have a lot of language impairments. They have limited vocabulary um, and even language understanding, following directions and using complete sentences. And some of them don't have language at all. So there's a wide range of students out there that don't really fit into some of the new style Absolutely. of teaching. Yeah. And then. I mean, just in general, students with IEPs that technically get some form of special education, whether gifted or supports, they definitely struggled trying to do virtual work. Or when we were coming back to school after the quarantine, those kids really struggled as well because they had been out of a traditional educating education model. And now to go back socially, there were a lot of issues there there were a lot of um, kids lost some skills for sure. Yeah. And I know my students didn't have great success <laughs> right. doing 
online learning. Right. It was very tricky. Mm-hmm. And then you think about early intervention, first graders, second graders, kindergartners, that group as well really, really struggled with learning virtually. They need that in-person support of being in a classroom. And it's interesting because now there's a lot of research coming back telling us how much the social emotional impact of COVID is directly affecting academics. So, so do we want to talk about who we're interviewing today? We should talk about that. We are talking to Dr. Karen Beard. Yeah, in our research for putting together this podcast, we came across an article that she was one of the authors on. The article is Time for Change, Understanding Teacher Social Emotional Learning Supports in Anti-Racism and Student Well-Being During COVID-19 and Beyond. Right, and they dug deep into other research as well as current situations with COVID and George Floyd and the situation there, I think those are so relevant and they all tie together to explain why there was such an intense level of emotional and mental health impact during that time period. So, yeah, so we're super excited to talk to Dr. Karen Beard. Yeah, she was great, answered all our questions. We reached out to her and she was an awesome person to interview. Let's listen into that interview now and let all of our listeners hear the awesome stuff she had to tell us. All right, so I started my career um, in K-12 education, first as an elementary and middle school teacher. Um, My areas of specialty were math and social studies. And so I spent a good deal of time just kind of um, really doing a lot of math kind of things with students. And I was identified early in my career to assume leadership in an urban district here in Columbus, Ohio. And then I was a principal of three different urban school sites, the last of which had many affiliations and connections with OSU, where I found myself pursuing my superintendent license and PhD, which then led me to research and the faculty appointments, you know, in my, what I call second career, because really this trajectory is a lifelong trajectory as well as teaching or the administration path that I was on. I currently chair the Ed Admin program at OSU, which I recently learned is now sixth in the nation and one of our only three flagship institutions that's public, that's ranked this highly. I'm associate professor in education administration and policy affiliate. Long time ago, it was educational administration and policy as the program, as the department. And then when they split the program, we just, we're on the ed admin side of it and policy has their own, but I affiliate with both sides. So we found you by looking at your article. And I just want to mention that because it was excellent. Thank you. Um, Yeah, it's called A Time for Change, Understanding Teacher Social Emotional Learning Supports for Anti-Racism and Student Well-Being During COVID and Beyond. Right. That was a really powerful article for me to read because you don't just talk about how um, students are impacted with social emotional issues that were amplified during COVID, but you really focus on how teachers are impacted. Correct. You start the article by saying that our teachers during COVID became de facto first responders. And I love that concept. I think it's very well placed. Can you talk to us a little bit about how you came up with that concept and how you see teachers fell into that during COVID? 
Yeah, absolutely. So first of all, the article was not written by me alone. Teddy Chow, who's also in, he's in the teaching and learning side of our college. Uh, he and I are friends and we just had a conversation about COVID and this special issue was born out of very organically with another colleague of mine, Anika Anthony. We were having a conversation really about the impact of what COVID was having on our population, the students that we teach. So the students that I have are advanced teachers. For the most part, they've been in the field for five, 10 years at least. And they're looking to do something in administration. So they're either certifying for a principalship or certifying for a superintendent program. That's our primary base. But then we also have EDD students and PhD students who are also advanced in the field. So we were hearing from teachers who have, like you mentioned before, you, you've been in the field for quite some time. I've been in just shy of 40 years. So this was the first time we were, we were hearing kind of the same things that you said that you heard, just this overwhelming sense of not knowing how to push forward or, or how to think about the time that we found ourselves in and the expectations that we were trying to face in the midst of all of this. So when I say de facto, um, de facto means pretty much in effect or by mm -hmm. fact. Whether, whether by right or not, the teachers were in fact often first to detect student changes. And those changes can be in demeanor, attitude, health, a whole host of cues that are determined or signaling in everyday interactions, unlike that might be seen by other adults outside of the, uh, outside of the school because we spend so much time with children. So when I call them de facto first responders, I first have to tell you that was not my phrase. I saw that in another article as it related to counseling. So they were saying that counselors sometimes function in this role as well, but teachers more so. And I thought about that in, in you know, thinking about where we were in this space. And I thought that's correct because we were hearing about first responders on TV in COVID and, you know, store clerks and first actual first responders as we've traditionally known them. And I thought, you know what though, with respect to our children, teachers are their first responders. And when I say that they detect these changes, minor changes in demeanor, attitude, health, all of those, those little interactional cues, those come from teachers. We send referrals out for counselors. We send referrals out for social work. We send referrals out to get additional support for students who may be showing, you know, even the slightest change in behaviors and or you know, health concerns. So they, teachers, because they interact with students literally eight hours a day, every day, are the only other adult in many ways who interact with children outside of the home. Yeah. So they are, in fact, our first responders. Do you feel like in COVID that that almost became a burden because they're not only managing their own social emotional issues, you know, in their own homes and their families and their communities, but now they're also really responsible for these kids. Well, I'll tell you where the burden was really felt. It wasn't initially so much in managing themselves in addition to the children. It was still staying in contact and communication, trying to engage the children and not having the same resources they once had at their fingertips. There was no one to refer children to. 
So even when they saw issues or they were losing contact with children for days at a time, there wasn't a truant officer, you know, that we could send out and say, hey, go check on your student or a social worker who had been working with the family immediately available to us because for many districts and not just urban districts, I'm talking about rural districts too, figuring out the technology was the very first layer of even trying to re-engage children and students. And then you ran into problems as you, as you saw in my article, where that particular quote in that article, the one I'm getting to draw from was from an urban household, but it was also true in the rural districts where there were multiple children in one house and the technology was sparse. So they would have to either share Zoom and depending on where they were in terms of their parents' understanding of the importance of their education. So you might have a high school student that monopolized the one computer in the house for longer periods of time. And then you have a kindergarten student who didn't get a chance to get on. So, so there's just a lot of issues that kind of fell out during this process. But like I said to you before, teachers generally, and in many ways, are the adult influence outside of the home. And differently, they are the ones who individual students see professionally dressed, greeting them um, without any negative interaction from home. And now, you know, that was gone from them. So the imprinting and modeling that teachers provide and the responsibility to detect those changes, especially those learning impacting changes, mm -hmm. those are the things I talk to uh, I, talk, I, I think about when I think about them as first responders. And in many ways, the well-being of every child is kind of in the palm of the hand of a teacher. So, so that, to me, just weighed very heavily during this time. And I think our teachers were really feeling it. Just the responsibility, but even more so not having the resource bank and feeling a little helpless ways in ways that they hadn't before they felt empowered with at least the resources that were provided for them now those resources weren't at their fingertips yeah i hadn't thought about it that way that's a really good point and i definitely saw that in our district yeah yeah we have a lot so well, i'm in columbus ohio so and mm -hmm. we have a huge university here we have several other universities in the area but even more impactfully we have a great business community who has always partnered with our public education system and was always willing to step up. They provided resources in terms of, of technology and gifting the largest urban district in central Ohio, which was wonderful. But then we ran into problems with internet access. Not every home had <laughs> internet access. So people were sitting in parking lots of places, you know, to access internet. And you got to understand when a parent is trying to figure out the daily functions of a house, right? And food and their own job, and then have to go to sit in a parking lot, either in a car or not in a car. I mean, that was a heavy task to ask. And so many parents chose not to, not because they didn't want to, but because the practicality of it was unrealistic. We're in Durango, and that is considered more a rural, like, ski mountain town with a yep. lot of challenges to get internet because of yep. just the landscaping, right? right. And so right. that was a huge issue in our district as well, for teachers as well as families and students. Well, I sort of end this article, and I know we're not to that place, but I sort of end this article with a, a little bit of a mild push that internet access really should be considered a public domain, just like water. Mm -hmm. You're in Durango, 
you're in Durango, but if you were that water, they'd get water to you, right? They would get yeah. the systems in place to get water to you. If there's people living there, there'd be water. And I think we're at the place now where we have to recognize technology is going to be so much a part of our lives. We cannot continue to have spotty internet or no internet at all. There has to be internet available throughout the country, country, yeah. throughout the entire nation. That was one of those equity issues you asked me about a little later. So, <laughs> Well, tell us a little bit from your perspective and all the research you reviewed and pulled together for this article. Tell us a little bit about the social emotional learning component. All right. Well, social emotional learning, really, I had been looking at prior to this and this article. I am what's called a positive psychology um, researcher. So one of the arms of my work is this, this work around these contracts of human thrival and how to, how to create spaces and places where the human condition can thrive. And um, so that's really around the work of conditions in schools for me and how schooling looks. So social emotional learning involves the process by which knowledge is acquired and, and effectively or appropriately applied in the schooling process. But it also entails attitudes and skills to understand and manage emotions. And those emotions include in, um, things like empathy, but then also to establish and work toward positive goals, develop and maintain positive relationships, have these responsible decision-making opportunities, and the support for one's own well-being and that of another. So it's very broad in, and encompassing, but it really speaks to the ability to appropriately and maturely manage your emotions and the opportunities that are around you to thrive. In this, it appears to be a lifelong process. For, so both students and adults need it and for which opportunities for engagement in practice have to exist. So while we're looking at it, and I don't know how it is in Colorado or New Mexico, in Ohio, the, the student social emotional learning has just come to the fore within the last five years. We now use what's called the CASEL, C-A-S-E-L. And the CASEL is a student social emotional learning tool that really focuses on I think there's four or five, like self-awareness, self-management, social awareness, those relationship pieces I talked about, okay. and, then, and then responsible decision-making. So it's already been in play in the curriculum for students. But during COVID, and what I was witnessing with the, the students that I was engaging with at the end of the day, and you have to remember our kind of my courses, because these people are administrators and teachers, we don't start teaching them till four o'clock at night. So between four and seven, we have them. And where we usually have been able to energize them and get them excited, they came to us so drained. It was really hard to, to at first engage them without just having some time to debrief and to reconnect in a different way so that they could begin to wrap their heads around the material in front of them while, you know, I don't use the word burnout, but it was a word that you brought forward earlier, but they were truly taxed and very tired. And so what I, what we ended up having to do was really take a lot of time, just like they were doing with their own students and talk about coping and what was happening and how, how to manage through this process. The hard part for COVID, I think, for all of us was the uncertainty of it. And, and the duration, you know, everyone was looking for an end, thinking we would get back to. 
by about, I want to say January of 2020, I would say, right? COVID-19, 2021. So by January of 2021, it was pretty clear to me there was no going back. It's not going to look the way it used to look on any level. And, and people were romanticizing and holding on to and clinging to uh, what they used to know and not embracing the fact that things are changing amidst us and, and, and we have to adapt with that change. Once I could wrap my head around that and get my students to begin to think about, okay, where do we go from here? There was not that longing and that depression that was from what was to kind of, when is that going to happen again? Because understanding we, where we are in the moment, uh, my colleague and friend, Lori Ladson-Billings said it best in an article. She said, I'm here for the hard reset. So when things aren't happening well on your computer, right? When things are just yep. messing up, right? You just, you hit that hard reset and that's when you start over. And I really appreciated her comment on that. I really understood that, that things are messed up. Things are really messed up in a lot of ways, but here we have a hard reset and we have to embrace that in a way that, that propels us forward into a better reality or we are going to suffer tremendously. Agreed. Yeah. Yeah, I I really liked your comment about debriefing though too. Like I feel like we've all done that so much and it's been yeah. chronic over yeah. the last two years. Yeah. And and Shannon, to your point, I will say one of the silver linings in COVID is that teachers did find a way to connect on the internet and connect with each other across the country and, and ask each other what's working and supporting one another, not only with their pedagogy and their learning styles and and new information but in their emotional support of one another so i feel like you kind of already answered that third question um what does social emotional learning look like in the education setting or yeah. um, share how it impacts students so maybe we go to the next one and it talk a little bit about teachers playing a significant role and from your expertise what what does that look like in person versus in versus a virtual setting and and does that look different than it used to look like yeah. i think it's good that you're recognizing i think we all need to recognize it's actually a silver lining from covid that we figured out how to switch gears and maybe a lot i think a lot of districts across the country had not come to a right. place where they were one to one with computers or a lot of teacher access a lot yeah. of teachers, and, and, and in that, there was no resistance. You had to figure yeah. it out. You had to learn. And, yeah. and so you're right. In many ways, and I talk about this also later, but in many ways, there were, there, were, there were several silver linings that I cannot deny. I would not wish this again on anyone, <laughs> on any level, ever. But I have to say, you know, and I've talked to my, my students just the other night. I teach positive psychology in the summer. And one of the things I was telling them is, is to pay attention and focus on those silver linings. What happened? What changed during that time? And the things that keep coming up, the themes that keep coming up was the gift of time. Hmm. So you have a gift in time that you never had before. You had time to do things that you could have or would have. It may have looked different. You weren't going necessarily to do the things that you wanted to on a sports track, but you had time. 
And so what did you do with that time? Did you maximize that time? And still we're going in these different, different phases if that time comes back to you again and we have another moment. Could you shift your thinking to think about this is the gift of time and what am I gonna do with this time? So time was one of the big, one of the big ones. The second one was the reprioritizing. And I think that came out really, really strongly Although it was perceived negatively, I didn't see it as a negative. When people had the great termination, right? Or the great resignation, whatever they called it, when people were leaving the jobs. What happened when you have that gift of time and you have a moment to reflect and think about how you want to live your life and what's really important, those values that come through, they came shining through. <laughs> and people thought who had, they had to work two jobs and that second job was maybe a server job, decided, you know what? It's enough for me to be here with my family. I don't think I have to have that second job. Or if I want to have a way to make more money, let me see if there's a way during this time I can retool and, and re-prepare myself for a different, a different day when this is all over. So those were two, two prominent gifts that I think was given to us through COVID. Now, the losses don't balance that by any means. It was a terrible time of loss for the nation, for families individually. And I speak to this in the article, urban families, only because I think I'm in the urban setting. I saw it more, but they were impacted tremendously. People, and like I, I did share this part, who were teachers who were also suffering losses, major losses, and had to change their lifestyle we're still in that position of keeping calm and steady for everybody else. So that pressure, yeah, it's real. It's very real. I had a student tell me, you know, there that his grandmother got ill, who was caring for her grandchild because the daughter had gotten ill and the daughter passed. And so now their whole family structure has changed. So now we have a baby is being cared for by the grandmother who's not well, and this teacher, who's a male teacher, had to step up and bring the young man into the house. So that's an entirely different shift that, that is going unspoken on, on many levels. But it's it, it, the impact on individual lives was tremendous. And so I don't, I don't make light of it in saying that there were gifts in it. But when you think about what you do in time of crises, you look for the lessons that you can learn on them. And, and you move forward. And that's called, that's being resilient. That's, that's just how you have to function. This, this civilization has continued and excuse me, perpetuated itself getting through crises. And this one was ours. This was our generational crises. And the way we manage it could determine how we move forward. So do you feel like for teachers, they were provided even when we came out of quarantine, but we're still managing COVID like we probably will be forever now. <laughs> Do you feel a, like those teachers got the kind of social emotional support they needed and the recognition of how impactful this was? Because I'm working with teachers that are just exhausted. Yeah, and well, I think more than burnout, I think Although some people are burning out, but I yep. think on top of that, like people who want to be teachers are just tired. Like I can't keep doing this. I need a break right. and nobody's given them a break. Right. But yeah. I will say this to you, Holly. Unfortunately, our society, we really need to decide how we want to prioritize education. 
we have not we have not championed our teachers well at all historically we've taken advantage of teachers we don't pay our teachers when things go wrong the teachers blamed many times instead of recognize the work that was done to try to make things right even in most challenging circumstances and so you asked me about how this plays out and i just want to say despite every effort the large school policies, the school policies and programs and initiatives, teachers have consistently been the key determinant in whether or not students thrive consistently. And I'm saying at the grassroots level, you can, you can put any policy in place, but if it's not implemented with fidelity and, and the teacher's expertise, it will not be successful. And so most of what we do in education really lies at the foot of the teacher's skill and how they are able to implement not only these programs and policies and initiatives, but they are the key determinants in whether or not even social emotional learning programs go well for students. So it's sort of like, well, who's watching the watcher, right? If we have these teachers who are watching over our children, we need to provide resources and we need to be taking care of these teachers so that they can in turn take care of our children. There's been a lot of studies on this. I'm a, I, there were three I, I pulled out when you asked me about this. And in first grade classrooms, regardless of socio-demographic information, research suggests that the higher level of teacher emotional support decreased student aggression and improved self-control. Now, on the heels of what we've just experienced in the last two weeks, that alone is worth gold. What is now known to us is that the emotional support early in the academic years is more indicative of a student's success outcome than any other strategy measurement, even classroom organization. So these interesting studies show that students need this learning of how to handle their emotional uh, growth and learning and teachers are the models and the implementers. So we have, to, we have to put in place measures to help support our teachers' learning of their own social emotional so that they can, in fact, be the role model we need them to be for our children. Yeah, I think that's incredibly powerful and something that, as you said, as a nation, we need to take a step back and yeah. really determine what where our priorities lie because there's nothing as impactful for our future as education kids ready to be the leaders of tomorrow it impacts all of us whether you're in education or right. a parent or a student or you're a student it impacts everyone even right. if you have no connection to the education system because if we don't prioritize this we're not going to raise leaders that can manage our country and crises like we just went through that's right. And you're not going to be able to get the skill development needed to continue the high tech and the complex structures we already have in place. So we have to train our students, our children, so that they can maintain that and then also build in mechanisms for them to dream bigger and higher so that our society can continue to grow. One thing I noted too from, from pulling and preparing I found this article that spoke to the nation classrooms as being very highly emotional. We know that they're relationally, relationally complex, but the emotion that happens in the classroom, I really hadn't paid close attention to, but those complexities involve hundreds of interactions every day, five days a week, 180 days a year. 
teachers and other educational staff, just by the sheer number of interactions, have an enormous responsibility to continue to maintain their composure, regulate their own emotions, and treat each interaction experienced with the significance and importance it deserves in that moment. And that is a socially, emotionally mature individual. Yeah, that's a lot of weight on their shoulders and and when everything is perfect. It is. We're in a time of crisis or you don't have the resources or you don't have the support, that becomes almost an impossible job. Right. And, and, and the, the thing that I struggle with is now that we know this is in place for children, how are we missing it for the adults? You know, we, we got to get, we've got to get this information to the adults. The issue with education and the challenge with education is that it is state by state. And that means that policies and their implementation sometimes are district by district. That is just too, too much by chance that things will go well. When in fact, we, we do have models where things are going well and, and could be informative and useful to bigger policy that would impact on a, on a bigger level. For example, there's a high school in Long Island and they promote social emotional learning and well-being using what they call a wellness room. And it's dedicated to relaxation for the teacher when they just feel like they need a break. But here's what they did. In that room, there's an on-call social worker. Mm -hmm. Social worker on call. So it doesn't seem like a big deal, but we need more counselors, we need more social workers, and we haven't been training because again, much like teachers, it's a field that's not highly regarded and highly respected or highly paid. And so many of our best and brightest, you know, opt out. Yeah. I mean, why, why invest in a higher education or getting specialized if you're not going to get paid for that because our country doesn't provide free college yeah. or university and you're going to stack up bills. So you right. have to come out with a job you can afford to pay all those bills. And we don't pay educators enough to make it worth their while. Right. And Um, I would be paid and respected for it as well. So that respect piece is huge. And I think that's, I think more than anything else, I think that is the part that teachers feel the most. When you talk about tired fatigue and burnout, it's it's not that they don't love the job. They do. What they don't love is the fact that they put in so much effort and they put in so much work and they are so highly educated and it's not respected. That's what drives people out and drives them to the place where they feel like they don't want to keep going. Well, and during COVID, the level of disrespect that came toward teachers because people were in heightened states, right? People were panicked, people were frustrated, people were going through crisis, but there was a lot of throwing that blame onto the teacher because they just needed some place to put that but for a teacher or for a person, right, to have to take all this negative feedback, like you should be doing this and my kid's not learning because you're not doing, you know, and yet they were thrown into this like everybody else and didn't yeah. have the right tools or any kind of support. And a lot of people don't realize that. Right. And people think, oh, they get summers off, their job's cushy. It's, 
Most huh. of the teachers I know don't take the summer off. They right. work a second job or they're getting ready for the next year. Education because it's required. Yeah. 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 So much. So one of the things that, that you sort of alluded to was during COVID, I, I kind of have to push back just a little bit. And I hope that I do this respectful of you. COVID, at least the years that we, we were under the gun of it, I'm saying 2020, 2021, COVID was not an isolated crisis. The summer of 20, we were all locked down in our house and we watched the George, George Floyd murder. And so that became part of COVID. Yes. Whether we wanted to admit that or not, it provoked the social unrest again that we had to confront, we had to deal with it. There was nowhere to go. There were no channels to turn to. It mm -hmm. was you in that room. And if you put on that TV, you were watching that murder over and over and over again. And so COVID is not in isolation. The other thing that happened was the political ranking on January 6th. And I'm sorry, you cannot say that that was separate in, in, in isolation from COVID. It's the same timing when all three of these crises came together. Really, when I talked about that messed up telephone and all that conversations happened and you need to just shut that thing down. That is sort of what I'm thinking about because some of this, what we are witnessing now in the political arena is so very convoluted and challenging to our sense of rationality that it feels as irrational as the murders and irrational as COVID itself. Who would have thought, and we don't know where it came from, doesn't even matter to me where it came from, but who would have thought if it came from a bite across the seas that in three days, six days, six weeks, it would shut down everything. Yeah. It's irrational. It doesn't make sense. Mm -mm. And so we've been in these two years of irrational circumstances. And we're still trying to function like it used to be. It won't be that ever again. Mm -hmm. Ever again. That's very true. And I think you brought up some really great insights in your article about not just socioeconomic and access during COVID, but with all of the other things that came up, all the social unrest and the, you know, crisis in prejudice and anti-racism and things that were also elevated and brought to the surface during this time, how much that impacted students and teachers. Mm -hmm. And you talked a little bit about some of the real strengths of African-American teachers when they were really trying to help their students through this. And that was a really beautiful segment of your article. Thank you. Thank you. And like I said, I can't take full credit off for that article. We really work very well together. I will say, though, our putting it out and pushing it out very much was dependent on the fact that we were all dealing with this ourselves. We were we were really working closely with students. And as a researcher, of course, I have Ph.D. students whose 
very future depends on our interaction with one another. And they are, you know, going through a lot of this themselves. So in our unit, and I shared this a little bit with you that I'm a positive psychology professor. So they're, you know, they're looking to me like, well, what's positive about this? And and to be honest with you, I didn't have easy answers either. But <laughs> I, will say, I will say in Edit Men, you know, we deal with findings and we promote research and teach yourself. But we also look at like flow. Um, flow is a construct from Mihaly Csikszentmihalyi that talks about optimal engagement and how you get excited about things when you have no external reward, the things that internally motivate you, right? Those things that you love to do just for the sake of doing it. We talk about efficacy in our program. How do you build um, teacher resilience and teacher efficacy and principal efficacy? We talk about PERMA, which is a construct of well-being that comes out of University of Pennsylvania that talks about these very things, positive engagement, good relationships, achievement, those things that make you feel like life is worth living. So when even things that are happening, happening circumstantially around you, and the time to center and think and refocus on those things that bring you satisfaction and joy and make your life worth living. That's where we sort of put our focus so that we could then uh, encourage our students to dedicate more thought to improving the human condition. And the teaching and learning process is a big part of that. Yeah. Shannon brought up a really good idea when she and I were talking yesterday about how during COVID and all of these things when we were all quarantined or even when we were coming back and some kids were quarantined and some kids weren't and right. you know it was just kind of a hodgepodge right. there was a lot of virtual stuff going on yep. administrators didn't have a better plan so they told teachers to come up with a plan so a yep. lot well Shannon should explain this because it's a really good concept so. go ahead Shannon well I was just commenting yesterday that one of the things that was most frustrating, and it was for me too, as a speech therapist, we felt like we had all that power because we we figured it out. Like we didn't get that top-down direction. It was more like you guys figure it out. And we did. Like there was a lot of successes, at least in our district, I felt like. But now as things have changed and like it's almost been a full turn that teachers are losing all of that power. And we thought like that was going to be the switch, right? Like, yeah. look at, we're showing then we can do all of this and they're, they're going to realize all these great things that we can provide and we're going to get the respect and recognition we deserve. And now it feels like it's completely opposite. And so I don't know if you have seen that or um, maybe have some insight on that. <laughs> So I can't say that I've seen that, but I will say you bring up an excellent point. Then it goes back to my silver lining. We figured it out, right? We have power now, especially in this virtual space. So why wouldn't we harness that and use it to the best of our ability? So I think about, you know, part of the pressure to go back to in-person, and this is even at the university level. This is not just at K-12 is that we know students learn best person to person. I get that. And that's true. There's no denying that. The other bit of this is pressure that's coming from that same business community and parents. So during COVID, I think we really realized just how much of a daycare schools are. <laughs> 
So parents are pissed because yep. they can't get their work done, right, with their kids at foot and dedicate the time and energy that they need to, to their kids because their work is calling them. So they're feeling torn. So they wanted us to fix that. That's mm -hmm. a big part of the pressure. The other pressure that I didn't pay attention to uh, until I, it, it was kind of right in front of me. A lot of businesses thrive on foot traffic. And so when buildings started to shut down and businesses started to close up, businesses that were getting even loan money were saying, you know, especially to the university, because our businesses around the university rely on student foot traffic. Mm -hmm. And so when our students aren't there, guess what? They're not running into the local Wendy's for a sandwich or, you know, so so a yeah. lot of the businesses were starting to fold and they were putting pressure on the university because once the university starts to look like a ghost town, it feels like a ghost town. And so it's not as attractive. So that is where a lot of the pressure is coming from. Yes, homes for parents, because it's truly inconvenient for them. Yeah. And then also the business community. So so some of that pressure the micromanaging, I have not seen, but I'm not, I'm not in K-12 right now. But I will say this about that. If that's happening, that seems futile. And that seems futile on an administrative level. And it seems, for lack of a better word, by administrators who really don't know what they're doing. And here's why I say that. Because they are inappropriately addressing unnecessary um, or adding, not adding, um, inappropriately adding what I would consider unnecessary stress on the professional workforce. That is not what you need to do, especially in a time of stress. District administrators, and I don't know if this is gonna sound preachy, but this they would be wise to empower the professionals to use what they have learned, particularly mm -hmm. when students have sick days. Why can't we do both now? Can we do in class and outside? Because one of the articles is from Josh, Childs and Molly, I think are Austin, UT Austin, I believe. They wrote an article called Hidden in Virtual Plain Sight. And, and, and what they are speaking to is the attendance, right? How do mm -hmm. we keep track of where our children are when we can't get our hands on them, when we don't see them, when we don't have them? And that, that's, that's, that's a piece I think we need to worry about. <laughs> And if you're, if you're saying, you know, you're micromanaging me and you don't want me back in virtual spaces, I really think that there's a bigger concern than you thinking about what I'm doing in letting me use these virtual spaces to keep my children engaged when they can't be with me in school. And the other thing, Shannon, you know, to your point, and I really appreciate this so much that the virtual world offered us. We had bigger board meetings than ever before. Now that's a good thing and a bad thing as we found <laughs> out. <laughs> but the reality is we could engage more of an audience virtually. You yeah. know, people who were working and were coming home and coming home at six o'clock to cook, they could still engage in a board meeting, right? Yeah. In their kitchen. So yeah. so those are the things that I think we need to really push forward in empowering administrators. But the part that got really messy and maybe adds to why they're doing it this way is the political pressure that came with that. And so the micromanaging is, okay, what are you saying? And are, what, what words are you using? Are you saying anti-racist? Are you using um, you know, critical pedagogy? What are you saying? What are you saying? So all of that 
may have come into play around administrators' fears, but honestly, to add stress to your workforce is a dumb move. It's just not a smart move. Yeah, ever. <laughs> Ever. Especially now, though, because like you said, you know, people didn't realize, well, damn it, administrators should have realized. They, they, they're the watchers of the watchers, right? Those are the ones that I'm saying. You need to be watching. Um, and they should have realized that the lives were upset and changed for all, not just children, but also their teaching staff. And I think most administrators know that. And most administrators are sensitive to that. And I'm sorry, you know, I, like I said, I don't know where this is. I, I had not heard this in our area that I'm aware of, but it seems futile and inappropriate. And I hope that it, it's short-lived, but I do think it may be coming out of a place more of fear. Cause like I said, when we speak about COVID, it's not an isolation. We have yeah. the social unrest and this political unrest that's also yeah. feeding that fuel. So that may be more part of what you're, what you're seeing and witnessing than anything. But one of the questions you asked me about, what did you see in urban that may or may not have been different in rural? And I will say that the frustration I heard from urban teachers and families was around the fact that, like I said before, schools were the bigger daycare than we thought they were. So food was big. Um, feeding um, the community, that our children in the community was huge, was a major priority. And that maybe was only second to technology and access to technology. In the rural area, I would say it wasn't necessarily food as much as I heard internet access, which you and I spoke about also before. So those three, it's, just, it's like food, technology, and then the internet access was, was, was really big. But I, what I added to you and what I showed you in Josh Childs's um, article, you know, the fourth thing is keeping track of the kids, you know, getting them online so that they could do the teaching. So those, those are the really important pieces, I think. I read a separate article and I don't have it right in front of me, so I can't give you the title, but I can send it if you're interested. Okay. Um, they were talking about how the teachers that spent a good amount of time debriefing, like you were talking about oh, yeah. with their students mm -hmm. during COVID or any time they've had to be virtual in the last couple of years, had more engagement from the students oh, in the learning. Absolutely. And again, that goes back to that social emotional learning, like the teacher, when they know that the debriefing helps them and they parlay that to the students and let them debrief, then the students are ready to learn. But if we don't right. take care of that emotional need, especially when there's so much crisis, that trifecta of things that happened in a short amount of time that were major, if we don't give people a chance to debrief from that and come down, they can't be available for academic learning. That's right. And that's one of the other things, two things that, that come to mind when you say that. I did a study, 2021 was the, the publishing of it, but it actually happened in 18, of a district in Southern California. And one of the board members said this, they said, we know a healthy child is a child ready to learn. We weren't talking at that time about social emotional. She was talking about physical health. But now when I read that article again, and based on the things that you say, I'm like, that's right. If we're not paying attention to the mental health, we're not gonna have children who are capable and or ready to learn. So that becomes a huge um, indicator for me, Holly, in what you, what you shared. The other thing that I just kind of wanted to think about in the pandemic, 
What it also illuminated, and this was community by community, but definitely along racial lines and socioeconomic lines were the inequities that were present, you know, truly exacerbated through, through this process. And again, one of those social lining, excuse me, those silver linings I talked to you about when you spoke about the teachers was they connected with each other. They use the internet to connect with one another across. So, so this this person, this school I talked about in Long Island, nowhere near me. I've never been to it, but I knew about it because a teacher in my class was sharing with me that she connected with his teacher, and they have an on-call social worker to help them debrief, you know, throughout the the pandemic, and that that was just a very smart administrative move to say to your teachers, even if you don't use them. They're there for you. We're there for you. We're trying. We're trying. And that's what I think I communicated to my students, what I'm hearing you all say you communicated. We don't have all the answers, but we're trying. And we're holding hands walking across this bridge together and understanding that there's no going back. So one of the things, you know, as as you talk to me about the inequities and as a society and nation, I talked to you about coming to terms with this unique period of time but also attending to our children's well-being, really a part of that is attending to the teacher's well-being. And it's just, it's just that simple. I can't see it any other, other way. I've, like I said, been in this for 40 years and I'm concerned. I'm, I'm not going to deny that I'm not concerned. I'm not Pollyanna, although I focus in that positive realm, it's to keep me going strong as well. But after having seen what I've seen over these these last three years, it's nothing I've ever seen before in my 40 and nothing you've ever seen. This is truly a generational. Now, how long it lasts, I don't know. But I will say this coming out of this, we have got to change the way we interact with our families. We have to change the way we interact with our children. We have to train our children in a much more equitable way. We have to educate our children much more equitably. We have to listen to our teachers and respect our teachers, or we're going to be in a world of hurt. And that's all I can say. I don't know anything else because what the alternative is on this just isn't pretty. It shouldn't be an alternative, right? Like we shouldn't want to go back to what right. maybe was happening before, because I think even it before COVID happened, there were already issues coming to the surface. It we wasn't were working. already recognizing that our education system wasn't equitable. It wasn't diverse. It wasn't doing inclusion in a way that was consistent across the country. Like so many gaps that I think is a silver lining from COVID that it pushed us right up to that tipping point. And now we have to make smart choices about moving forward. And I think even, even the suggestion of all districts offering some kind of social worker or counseling for teachers to have to fall back on, even if we're not in a time of crisis, is powerful. Yeah. And you have to understand, this is, this is a field where we are given the responsibility of our most vulnerable. And the only real requirement a teacher has, state by state, is their professional development. That's it. There's no requirement for mental capacity. There's no requirement for physical capacity. There's nothing like that. And I'm not saying that it has to be in place, but I'm, I'm saying it's worth studying. It's worth looking at. I know that, you know, after you listen, I don't know if this is true about counselors, but I heard this about psychiatrists. After you listen to so many people's problems over the years, you got to check yourself out, right? 
You got to make sure everything's <laughs> everything's ticking, right? And, and, and why is that not the case for teachers? We deal with so many children's issues and we, I mean, major stuff. We experience children who have been abused and, and just, you know, in very difficult home lives. And, and if you don't think that messes with your psyche, you're wrong. You know, it does, it, or, or unless you're not human, um, it's going to impact you. And so why can't we make, why can't we make counseling, you know, available and readily available to teachers as a priority? when we are thinking about their their well-being and and put in place all kinds of facets of well-being including physical you know although teachers stand and most of them are in pretty good physical shape you know they move around a lot more than most professions but the stress man that cortisol level is high and so how do you manage that if you're not exercising if you're not doing something to to honor the body needs. So there's just a lot there. I think that that now, just now, unfortunately, the tension is now being brought to teachers. And one of this, what I shared with you today, Corey Hilty, who was my student, um, he and I had this, this exchange a few years back and it was the impetus for his study. So that's, this is very organic is what I'm trying to say. And it's kind of, still rolling out. I can't say it's brand new because we've looked at wellness before, but as it applies to teachers, this is there's no time more critical than now in my mind. What a great interview. She is so knowledgeable. I really appreciate how she says that we need to work together. Right, this is definitely an everybody problem, not just if you're a student or an educator or the parent of a student. This affects everyone. Yeah, I agree completely. Um, these kids are going to be running the world someday. They're going to be making decisions in their communities and in their homes. And we need them to be good decision makers, good problem solvers. And we need them to have the social emotional skills that in a time of war, they don't make a rash decision or that they aren't making impulsive decisions or decisions from a negative emotional space about money or government issues or with their families and their homes. Like there's so many reasons why this is impactful. I agree a hundred percent. And next week we're going to shift gears a little bit and really focus on the positive with resources for social emotional learning and teachers giving some information about how it's impacted them to get that training. Oh yes. We are meeting with um, Dr. Alana Nankin from Breathe for Change. Yeah, that is, it's a super cool program that she started and runs and it's just growing like wildfire. And then we got to talk to Courtney Ham, a teacher in Colorado who went to this training and how it's impacted her. It's gonna be really cool. Oh yeah, some great information. All right, so we need to be educated. So we can change the world. We, we can, can do, do better. better. All right, you guys better come back next week and hear the good stuff. Bye.